Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello, and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tip scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so thrilled to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author, and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together, and thankfully, we have a lot of wonderful people we can call on to get the help and insight we need. Do your children or young teens get nervous, scared, jittery, uneasy, agitated, stressed out? Well, everyone gets worried sometimes. Some people are able to move through worry fairly easily, while others find that worry gets in their way. Does that happen to your kids? In certain situations, it certainly can happen to mine. Some kids worry about school or tests or where they're going to sit at lunch. Others worry about bugs or thunderstorms, bad dreams, or being away from their parents. As an adult, sometimes our kids' worries seem strange or illogical, and we get frustrated or overwhelmed, annoyed, or even worried about their worry. We need some tips and scripts to help our kids tame those jitters, especially when we aren't there to always help them through that worry. Well, we're in luck. My next guest is going to help us talk to kids and help kids understand and outsmart worry. Dawn Hebner, PhD, is the author of the award-winning What to Do When You Worry Too Much, the brand new Outsmarting Worry, and six other books for children that have been translated into 21 languages and nearing the 1 million mark in sales. This is not surprising because her books are really great. They give you such great insight and also really remarkable tools that you can use right away. Her work has been featured on the Today Show, WebMD, Parents Magazine, and other news and media outlets. Dr. Hebner gave a TEDx talk, a great talk that I have seen myself on rethinking anxiety, and is a popular speaker for both parenting and professional groups. She is based in Exeter, New Hampshire, where she specializes in the treatment of anxious children and their parents. I love your work, Dawn, and I couldn't be more excited to have you here as a guest on How to Talk to Kids About Anything. So welcome to you, Dawn. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm thrilled to have you because uh, in my house, we've got some worries that go on. I used to be worried as a kid, and in fact, I remember when... Uh, my fourth grade teacher had us all like reading some signs that were around the room, even towards the beginning of the school year. She said, Robin, this one's for you. And she pointed to it and I said, don't worry. So it was something that I grew up with a little bit and I see it in my own kids at times. But before we get into the meat of the matter, for those who haven't had the opportunity to read your books or to meet you or see you speak, would you just take a moment to tell us what gets you up in the morning and why you got so passionate about the topic of anxiety and kids? Yeah, so I was an anxious child also, but I didn't know that I was an anxious child. Mm. In my family, we didn't talk about nervousness or worry or fear. We had very much kind of a tough it out approach. Um, So I grew up anxious without knowing it. 
not surprisingly, I had an anxious child myself. Mm. And um, when my son was little, he developed a number of specific phobias, strong specific fears. One of them was to splinters. Mm. And initially, we did what most parents do, which is that we reassured him that he wasn't going to get splinters. And that um, didn't really do anything. It didn't help him. And the more we reassured him, the more afraid he became about the possibility of a of splinter. Mm. And the fear morphed into a broader fear of anything made of wood, because mm. anything made of wood, he thought, could make him get a splinter. And so we started to help him avoid touching wood, which is not so easy to do. Mm. Mm. And the more we fostered that avoidance, not knowing that that wasn't the right thing to do, the more we fostered that avoidance, the more his fears grew. And it got to the point that he was nearly incapacitated. He, he had a lot of trouble kind of navigating the world, understandably, because there's a lot of stuff made out of wood. Mm-hmm. And it eventually got to the point that we realized that he needed some help. I was a therapist, but I didn't at that time really know about anxiety and mm-hmm. how to best treat it. And we brought him to a general therapist who was really not helpful to us. And it caused me to realize that I needed to take matters into my own hand. And I kind of stumbled upon cognitive behavioral therapy, which was something that I didn't really know about before. It wasn't part of my training in graduate school. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's the evidence-based way to treat anxiety. And it completely turned things around Mm. for my son. Wow. Ultimately me and in my clinical practice and it led to the writing of my first book and what is exciting about this for me is that there's a way to think about and talk about and respond to anxiety that's different from what our instincts lead us to do Hmm. but it's so powerful and it's so effective and it's something that parents and kids can be taught fairly easily so what gets me up in the morning is that this is exciting work mm. and it really changes people's lives. And I love that. I love being part of that. Wow. And I have your books in front of me and I, I just loved reading them and how practical you are. I, I have so many questions just even listening to that first introduction that you had. So let me first begin with, I mean, we know that kids are often afraid of all different kinds of things. We we had a dog. Um, he, he passed away last year at 16. So my kids, you know, would have friends come over. And even at that time, the dog was pretty old. But we had some people who were definitely scared about coming over. My child's afraid of, you know, of dogs. You know, what should we do? Maybe you should come over here. I mean, I've seen kids who are highly afraid of bees, which makes a little bit more sense to me. Uh, or, But they're also afraid of spiders that are sort of across the room. You talked about splinters. It's, it's you know, it's interesting because there's so many different kinds of fears, but sometimes anxiety can seem so illogical. Can you, can you tell us why anxiety can be so illogical, like the thing with your, with splinters and wood and all that kind of thing? Right. So anxiety is not about what is happening. Anxiety is about what might happen and it's anticipatory, right? So, um, children start to think about bad things that could happen. And in an anxious brain, possible 
is the same as probable. So if something bad might happen, it begins to feel like it will happen, it's going to happen. And it often gets hugely exaggerated, not only the probability, but also how bad the bad thing's going to be. Mm. So it often seems illogical to people, you know, to people who are not experiencing this. Um, it makes sense to the anxious person because they're thinking that that bad thing might happen. And often they're right. The bad thing might happen. Right. But they're grossly overestimating both probability and how serious that bad thing is going to be. Oh, so interesting. And thank you for putting it so clearly that it's not about what will happen, but what might happen. And it may have already happened. I'm sure your kid probably did get a splinter at some point, right? I mean, at sometimes it's based on my child had a, at two years old, was at a park and swatted at a hornet. Not a great idea. And right. it stung his face. Right. So, of course, now he's actually not, it's not about hornets so much, but just bees in general, like anything right. that's like Anything that. flying around his face, I would imagine. Yes. So we all have this thing called safety learning, this mechanism called safety learning. And what that is, is that when we're in a situation where we've gotten hurt or when we feel like we're about to get hurt, our brain makes a quick imprint of all of the details around that situation. Mm and helps us remember the details to, to try to keep us safe. It's a protective mechanism, and it's an important one. There are all kinds of ways in which we need that kind of danger learning to happen. But sometimes it can happen mistakenly, or it generalizes too broadly. And so we have an alarm go off in our head anytime we're reminded of anything that has to do with the situation that hurt us in the past. So I often see anxious kids that have what they describe as superstitions. Mm -hmm. So they once threw up and they were wearing a green shirt and they will not wear a green shirt again mm -hmm. because they're convinced that somehow that puts them in danger, right? Um, but that's a really good example of danger learning gone awry, right? Right. Um, Right. We sometimes have it go in the right direction where we're like, oh, these socks were lucky. So I'm just going to wear them every time I play baseball. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so very interesting that, you know, people have these illogical fears, but we feel like almost powerless because they seem so illogical to us. And I imagine that parents and I, I certainly have gone through this in my head thinking, how did this fear happen? My daughter gets pre-nervous, <laughs> pre-nervous yes. before the idea of my husband and I going away for a couple of days for business. Then she gets, gets starts to get a little nervous about us going because we won't be around pre-nervous. Nothing's actually happened. But I'm wondering to myself, like, what did I do that made this happen? So can you talk a little bit about how these kinds of fears can start, especially ones that you go, wait, nothing actually has happened that seems like it would make an imprint on my child in that way. Right. So the kinds of things that kids get frightened about or nervous about make sense, right? Mm -hmm. um, a, your daughter might anticipate that she, when you're gone, she might miss you. Yes. She might need you, something might happen. That's logical for her to wonder about those things. Sure. 
what happens though is she wonders about those things and then a danger alarm gets pulled in her head Mm -hmm. and once the danger alarm gets pulled she begins to not be able to think clearly so when that alarm gets set off she can't access the things that she normally knows right her past experiences or things that she's been told or the fact that there'll be another caregiver there that's going to be helpful to her she can't access any of that And so what children tend to do when that danger alarm gets pulled is they avoid Mm. the situation or they seek reassurance. And both avoidance and reassurance seeking are tremendously reinforcing, meaning that when a child seeks reassurance, it helps them feel better. Or when a child avoids a scary situation, it helps them feel better. Mm-hmm. But that's problematic because it locks avoidance and reassurance seeking into place. It makes children feel that when they're feeling nervous, the only way they can cope is if they get reassurance or they avoid what they're afraid of. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there's, I imagine there's a temptation as a parent, of course, that you want to help your child. You want to... reassure them you want to maybe even help them to avoid the dog that might be there or the bees that might be we won't go out now we'll go out in a little while we won't go near those flowers we'll go over here you know just like you were saying you avoided places with wood but I imagine that also kind of feeds the proverbial monster under the bed so exactly right right? so if you imagine what one of the things that's really helpful to do is to externalize anxiety or externalize Mm. worry meaning to think about worry like it's a little creature like a little beast that's come along and is trying to frighten your child by all of these scary possibilities and reassurance feeds the worry beast so It helps a child feel better right in the moment, but it's giving just a big hearty meal to this little worry creature. Um, And it's making it so that your child is increasingly dependent on the reassurance and same with avoidance. When you avoid, you're strengthening that idea that whatever it is, the garden or the dog or the bee is actually a danger. Mm. Um, And that feeds the worry beast again. So it's helpful to do this externalizing. It's helpful to name worry. So I see kids who talk about having like germ worm Mm. or um, somebody creatively calls their worry kebab. You know, it can be (laughs) named anything. Um, A funny name is a good one. I try to avoid calling it a worry monster because I don't want to introduce the idea of monster, but beast or something like that is okay. So to name the worry and then to teach a child how to see it as separate. It's, it's, you know, here comes Kebab. He's trying to scare you again. So kids can learn to begin to disconnect from it a bit and to talk back and challenge and disobey their worries. Like, Kebab, get out of here. What are you doing here again? I see you lurking there. That's right. Yeah, we talk about that name it, claim it, tame it. So powerful to be able to name the worry and actually be able to say, this is not my voice. This is not me saying this, but rather something else, something external that I can have power over. Um, So that makes a lot of sense to me. So... As we were saying, the parent can often sort of sort of feed into this, but at the same time, okay, 
you're not supposed to reassure them, maybe like in the way that we are or and we're not supposed to help them avoid it. But we can't just sit there and be like forcing them to touch the wood or to force them to, you know, go down the slide with the bees on it. Like, what what are you supposed to do? We can't force them to do it. So how are we supposed to get them to start doing things that they may be afraid of? Yeah, so it's really important for parents to help their children have some sort of framework within which to understand what's happening for them. Mm -hmm. And those conversations need to happen when a child is not in the midst of panicking about something. Um, but parents can explain to their children this idea that, you know, there's this kind of little externalized, personified being that we're going to imagine, and it pulls an alarm within your brain, and it tries to make you think that you're in danger when you're actually not in danger. And the more you listen to it, the more you respond to that alarm as if it's true or as if it's giving you valid information, the more you strengthen it, the more likely that alarm's going to get triggered again in the future. So we need to learn to talk back or we need to learn how to challenge that. And you can customize that explanation for younger kids, kids as young as about four, and for older kids, for teens, you give them more scientific information and use more accurate terms. But you're kind of eliciting your child's both understanding and agreement to begin to push back against worry. And then while, you know, it's not the case that you want to force your child to do something, but you do want to work out ways for them to practice moving towards rather than away from the things that are scary for them. So, um, you know, with my child being afraid of wood, we did a, a process where he initially was just around wood, even though he wasn't touching it. He was watching us, us touch wood and, you know, kind of tolerating seeing that. He was then moving to literally like putting a quick finger on the wood and then moving it away and then increasing the amount of time that he had to be touching. And this kind of practice isn't um, kind of just incidental. You don't wait until you're in the anxiety-provoking situation mm -hmm. to try to get a child to learn how to tolerate it. You have to purposely practice. Um, and there's like a, you know, kids desensitize or kids habituate eventually through this intentional practice. And just like um, I talked to a few minutes ago about danger learning, there's something called safety learning. Mm -hmm. And that is when children through repeated experience learn that actually the thing that they were afraid of is safe. And, and it's important for parents to facilitate that kind of learning in their children. I see, I see. So it really is a process. I'm wondering then, let, let's say you were, you, you realized your son is been avoiding and you've been reassuring and and you realize in that at some point I've created a problem now or I've fed this monster and now we need to do something about it what would you say to your child who you know has has been going along with the avoidance and the reassurance for all this time to get them to even be on your team to start trying to conquer this beast right so again, I begin with externalizing and personifying worry. Most kids who are not in the moment of anxiety are able to recognize that worry is really causing a lot of trouble for mm. them. It's making it hard for them to do things and it's making them feel bad. It's making them feel scared more often than their peers are. So, um, you know, try to have some basic understanding and some motivation to do something about that. 
And then the way that I explain exposure to kids, exposure is um, doing the things that you're afraid of on purpose um, without all those protective mechanisms and safety behaviors in place. Mm -hmm. The way that I typically explain that is by the process of habituating or desensitizing to something which kids understand because they've all had the experience of jumping into a cold swimming pool and getting used to the water. Mm. And that is a perfect example of how we can desensitize or get used to something that's initially uncomfortable for us. Mm. So the water in a pool isn't scary. It's cold. It's uncomfortable, right? right. Um, but if we stay in the water, we just get used to it. We stop registering the, the fact that it's cold. And we can use the fact that our brains and our bodies are able to get used to things and apply that to whatever it is that we're afraid of. So we can get used to being around bees. We can get used to dogs. We can get used to touching wood. We can get used to anything. And just like in a swimming pool, how to get into the water, you can either jump in or you can gradually lower yourself step by step in. When you're trying to desensitize to something that you're afraid of, you can do it in a plunge-in way, kind of all at once, or you can do it in a gradual step-by-step -step way. Most kids elect to do it step-by-step, -step, which is absolutely fine. Um, but that's a basic way of kind of explaining to kids why it is that it's important to approach and how that's going to work within their brains and their bodies. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, we had interviewed... Dr. Lynn Kenny in a in a really popular podcast episode on calming down procedures. And she was really talking about calming down when a child was having a tantrum. But I'm just wondering, she talked a lot about breathing. And I was wondering if breathing in a specific way is a way that you suggest is helpful for dealing with anxiety and and how can people do it? And are kids into it? Will it be helpful? What do you think about that? Yeah, so um, it, there's a part of our brain called the amygdala, and the amygdala gets set off when we think that we're in danger. And breathing helps to calm the amygdala. Mm -hmm. But it does not work when a child is in the midst of an amygdala storm, you know, when they're panicking about something. It doesn't work to just say, take a breath. Mm -hmm. um, oh, gosh, I feel like I'm guilty right. of this. Yeah. Just so hitting me right there. Really, <laughs> I'm sorry. Take a breath. <laughs> they're really, really resistant to that. So you need if you if you're going to use breathing you need to talk to kids about breathing ahead of time you need to talk to them about how there's this alarm system in their brain and sometimes an alarm gets triggered accidentally and breathing is one of the really helpful ways that that can calm we can calm that down and then kids can practice breathing when they're not in the midst of an episode so there's a, a fair amount of prep work that needs to be done and breathing practice that needs to be done in order for breathing to be helpful in the moment but if parents do that prep work and that practice with their children, so practice calm breathing or slow breathing, then absolutely it is helpful in the moment. Mm -hmm. But it's not the end of the story. Mm -hmm. So the purpose of the breathing is to calm down enough to be able to think more logically and access a skill set that you've learned. And the skill might be, I need to talk back to my worry, or I need to challenge my worry, or I'm not going to let my worry be the boss of me in this situation. So it's not just breathe and you're done. It's breathe and then you need to use one of your other strategies. Mm, okay. So it kind of just gets sets the stage. Correct. Okay. You know, you mentioned... Have, making sure your children have the skills before they're in the circumstance. And I'm wondering, you know, I have 
my kids maybe starting a new activity or going to camp for the first time or being away for the first time. Is there some pre-work you can do when they don't even, they're not showing signs of worry at this point, but you know that a couple weeks from now, months from now, you know that these are the types of things that may cause some worry in advance. Is there anything that you can do to help them prepare to sort of head it off before it starts or you just got to jump into the pool? Yeah, so I guess I want to start by saying that worry isn't necessarily a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And worry happens for important reasons. It kind of alerts us that we need to pay attention. And so it's important for parents to talk to their kids about that, to the fact that the goal is not to wipe out all worry. The goal is to not let worry stop you from doing things, right? So um, if you have a child who you know gets paralyzed by worry, then it absolutely does help in advance to talk about whatever the new activity or new event is going to be. I see lots of parents who are reluctant to bring up the start Mm -hmm. of school or the start of a new activity because they don't want to trigger their child. That's typically a mistake. So it's better to bring it up and talk about it in advance and have your child be able to put into words the things that make them feel uneasy or unsure. And then you can do some problem solving about that. But one of the things that I, one of the many things that I love about um, working with kids and parents on anxiety is there's kind of a one size fits all, one size fits all situations set of techniques. Hmm. So it's not as if you need to kind of have a new approach to different manifestations of anxiety. You kind of do the same thing every time. Um, which is part of what makes this so user-friendly, so doable. Mm-hmm. I know you talk a lot in your book about different ways to deal with anxiety and outsmarting worry. And you mentioned before, you know, you don't want to be avoiding things and sort of helicopter parenting the circumstance. And I'm wondering, I just want to talk about the line there. So... If your child is worried about, let's say, the start of school, like you were just saying, I often like to suggest, you know, talking to your child and find out, well, what would make you feel less scared and more calm? And let's say in my child's situation where they're going to a new activity or a new camp, it would mean let's meet somebody in advance who might be also going to the activity. Is that kind of cheating the system? Or is that a good idea to kind of find out what may calm them down? Yeah, that's a good idea. So, you know, um, it's important for kids to develop an understanding of the fact that we can feel lots of things at once. So we can be nervous and excited Mm -hmm. at the same time. We can feel um, unsure and curious at the same time, right? We can feel two things at once. And the more difficult of our feelings, feeling unsure, feeling anxious, feeling nervous, we can decide that we're going to shift our attention or shift our focus to the other things that we're feeling. So Mm. uh, 
you know, if there's a child afraid about starting school, you can talk about the specific things that make them nervous and help them come up with a plan for how they're going to manage those things. And then absolutely, you'd also want to talk about what are the parts you're excited mm. about, what parts you're looking forward to, and then help kids learn how when the worry thoughts come up to kind of change the channel or shift the Ooh, focus like that. onto the more positive stuff. Love the change the channel idea. Right. That is genius. So we're talking a lot about things that we kind of know in advance, the new activity, new the start of school. What about the thing we can't plan for? Like all of a sudden the bee comes, you know, it's happening right now. You're in the circumstance or, you know, all of a sudden you're in a, in a new situation that you hadn't planned for. How can we help our child when they're in the moment and we didn't know it was going to happen. Okay, so um, a child who has no history of a fear of fees, fear of bees, might see a bee and get scared in the moment. Mm-hmm. And most parents are going to help their child move away and quickly reassure. Mm-hmm. But if your child has a history of being afraid of bees, then the fear when it comes up shouldn't take anyone by surprise. Mm. Right? And part of what's important is to begin to um, anticipate and almost expect that mm-hmm. worry is going to show up and to be ready for it. So to have in mind, here are the steps. Here's what okay. we're going to do, right? And the set of steps that I think is most helpful is first to recognize here's worry, mm-hmm. right? So hi, worry, <laughs> you know, to kind of greet it. Here it is, right? Mm-hmm. And then to talk back to it. So in some way to um, help kids say, you're not the boss of me, or you're just trying to scare me, or I know you want me to think bees are scary, but I don't fall for that anymore. So to kind of recognize it, talk back to it. And then the third step is to find a way to challenge it. Um, so that means to specifically not give in or capitulate to what worry is wanting you to do, but to find a way to push back and to challenge it some. And if parents and kids are clear that those are the three steps, then when worry shows up, it's easier to just click into the steps. Mm, I like that a lot. I'm wondering, though, if (laughs) I remember sitting down and talking to a bunch of kids about courage and Mm -hmm. When I was talking about, you know, facing facing your fears head on and sometimes fear is false evidence appearing real, you know, the acronym, what do you do when the bee actually stings the child? When the thing actually happens and they go, see, it did happen. So now what do you do? Are you back 100 paces or what, what do we do then? No, so that raises a really good point, and it's actually one of the main problems with reassurance, Mm. because it it often is the case that the things that kids are afraid of could happen, Right. right? They could get a teacher who yells. Something could come up while you're away. They could end up throwing up. They Mm -hmm. could get stung by a bee. The bad thing could happen. And when you're... um, relying on reassurance, telling a child that's not going to happen, that's not going to happen, that's not going to happen, kids know that you don't have a way of guaranteeing that. So it's important for kids to learn how to tolerate uncertainty, Mm. for kids to learn how to tolerate the, the possibility that a bad thing might happen. It might be a tiny possibility, but it could actually happen. Mm -hmm. Many, many kids who are 
terrified of something like a bee sting or of throwing up. Fear of vomiting is a really common fear. Many kids who are afraid actually say that when the bad thing happens, they see that it wasn't as bad as they thought it was oh, going to wow. be. Oh, wow. Which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, when the thing that a child fears actually does happen, if you haven't tried to provide a guarantee in the past, then your child really doesn't have any grounds to say, see, it did happen, Mm -hmm. because you've known and talked all along about the fact that it might happen. Mm -hmm. And what you can focus on then is the way your child coped with it, Mm. right? So a bee sting, yes, it absolutely hurts a ton Mm -hmm. when it initially happens. And within a few minutes, it feels a lot better. Mm -hmm. So you sort of focus on the coping. You focus on the fact that your child survived it. Mm -hmm. It's not whether or not the bad thing happened. It's that life goes on, even though bad things sometimes happen. Wow. Yes, that is that is so important. There are going to be times when we're going to mess this up because, you know, it's it is that instinct, isn't it? To be to tell your child it's going to be okay. The way kids hear that is that nothing's bad, yes. nothing bad's going to happen. And we need to be careful that what we're really saying is, I have faith in you that mm. you're going to be able to handle things. And, and especially for young kids, there are always helpers around. There are people that are going to help you. Um, I wanted to take a step back and just talk for a moment about courage. Yes. So it is really important to talk to kids about courage and bravery. But I find that many anxious kids don't really understand what brave means. Mm. They say that being brave means to be not afraid. Oh, right. And that's not what it means, right? right? It means to be afraid and to do something anyway, to right. be afraid and to step towards anyway. And it's really important that we help kids understand that. Is so important, right? We're rising above some of those fears and making sure that we don't shy away from the new activity, from playing in the park, from touching wood or something that may have germs on it, because then it really does get in the way of fun and learning and all kinds of other good stuff. I like your script so much about instead of saying, you know, you're going to be fine, it's all okay to be able to say, I have faith in you, that you're going to be able to cope with what whatever happens. That's That's a really nice way of still feeling like you're on your child's team and you're not dismissing the fear, but rather telling them that they have what it takes to cope with whatever happens. Correct. And you talked a few minutes ago about helicopter parenting, right? So helicopter parents hover over their children and try to make sure that nothing bad happens and that their child doesn't have to struggle in any way. And that is not helpful for kids because it implies that struggle is bad and that you can't cope with being frustrated Um, having to wait for something, being embarrassed, um, you know, that those things are so terrible that I'm going to protect you from all of them. And really what we want children to learn is that they're strong and they're resourceful and they're resilient and that they can have uncomfortable feelings and manage those feelings and they can find themselves in tricky situations and they can problem solve. So we want kids to feel strong rather than to be suggesting in any way that we think that they can't cope. Mm. 
This is so important, this information. And, you know, part of it is a retraining for us. This is not just, you know, helping our child deal with the fear, but really helping the parent deal with the fear as well, because we actually can sometimes get worried about their worries, right? And that feeds the fire. Yeah, so anxious kids trigger their parents. Um, I felt that big time with my son. You know, he when he was nervous, I got panicky because I didn't want him to have to be scared or I didn't want him to be uncomfortable. And so I would start scrambling around trying to make that fear go away, right? And we would both just escalate. Um, I actually did that with anger too. I hated when my son was angry and I did everything oh, I could yes. to try to have him not feel that way. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes, I can, I can. I totally get what you're saying. And I, I know that impulse. So right. in that moment, as a parent, if we start to feel ourselves get nervous, start feeling like we're about to scramble around, make things better, what should we be doing in our own minds to calm ourselves down and to make sure that we're parenting effectively for our child who is anxious in that moment or looks like it's about to get there. Yeah, so I think one of the single most important things parents can do is pause. Mm. So rather than being immediately reactive, I think it's important for parents to take a moment and calm themselves internally. And that might be through breathing and it might be by talking to themselves in a calming way, but to just pause to get on top of their own feelings. And then to think about in the case of anxiety, that worry is kind of like a cult leader. Worry really tries to get people to obey to its rules. And parents need to stay clear on that and to see that they're stronger than worry and they're not going to enter into the cult and they're not going to allow their child (laughs) to be a part of that cult. Such a good way of putting it. I I have this image right now of, you know, the the beast that comes out with this of this worry, and then of course they have all these sidekicks, right? These come out. Wait a second, he has an entourage. That's right. But talking about it in that way with kids is really helpful. And kids can draw pictures of it Mm. and name it. And kind of introducing that humor helps kids to see something about, wait a minute, this is absurd. Or wait a minute, I don't have to do this. That's really useful. Yes. It's Mm. like uh, your your Bob is bringing out my Steve. Now, wait a second. Right. Yes. All right. Awesome. This is so important. I would love to know your top tip because you have so many good ones and your books are filled with them. But what would you say is the top tip when we're talking about helping kids outsmart worry? Uh, I would say the most important one is to learn to recognize when worries in the room Mm -hmm. and to talk back to it, like to not immediately capitulate to it. Because it's not always obvious, right? Like sometimes it sort of sneaks up on you, like like some kind of stealth fighter. Right. Well, in my most recent book, I talk about how worry disguises itself. So it can look like boredom. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to do that. I don't like that rather than I'm scared about it. 
Um, but yeah, so it is kind of stealthy, but it has a pattern and, um, you know, parents and kids who are paying attention can clearly recognize it over time. Right, right. So that kid who seems like maybe they're being disagreeable or, you know, trying to opt out of an activity, it's not necessarily behavioral. It may be this fear. Absolutely. And it's important to not respond punitively to things like that. So there's this middle ground where you don't want to be overly accommodating the anxiety, but you also don't want to be hard on your child around it. You want to be supportive and empathic and to um, parents can be coaches to their children to help them use a, a skill set, a new set of skills. Right. So in that moment, you would call it out and be able to say, this looks like worry sitting next to you and telling you those lies again, right? And then you're prompting them to kind of yes. go down that same path. Yes. Okay. So tell me what the resource of the week is. Where can we go to get more information about you, your books? What would you like us to do after hearing this outstanding podcast today? So uh, parents can feel free to visit my website, which is dawnhebnerphd.com. And uh, there's a link to my TED Talk. There's a description of my books and my clinical practice. Uh, so that's a good way to find out more about me and my work. Excellent, excellent. And I'm sure there's links to your to, to the books right there that, so that they know exactly what they're looking for. Right. Okay. And we'll have all of the books and we will have uh, links to Dawn's uh, web website all on the show notes as well. So if you aren't sure where to go or how to spell a name or anything like that, we'll have it all there right there waiting for you. Um, anybody who's interested in in these books, I'll tell you, it definitely is helpful, not just for the kid who is habitually anxious, but I think for any child who sometimes gets nervous here or there to have some of these skills in your back pocket. So mm -hmm. I just want to say thank you so very much for coming on the show. I loved what you said. I, I mean, I love the skills that you provided, but I also love what you said about the the scripting. You know, you have we have we we have faith in you that you're able to cope with this. What a delightful way of being able to help your child without going down the path of reassurance that kind of backfires in our face. I, I just, I, I really love the way you're speaking about worry and, uh, and the way that you frame it so that we really can become experts in helping our child conquer that worry. Oh, thank you. Well, it was a pleasure, and I'm looking forward to hopefully having you back on the show. We can do it some kind of different avenue, because I know that you'll have more to, to teach us, more books that are coming, and uh, you are a delightful guest. So thank you very, very much. Thank you for having me. Well, I've got my takeaways, and sweet friends, I know you have yours. Let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook, go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page, or let's, ch let's chat about it at drrobinsilverman.com or twitter.com slash Dr. Robin. And I'm on Instagram now, and I'm posting all over Instagram about these great podcasts with memes that you can share. I love getting this information out there. And as you can 
imagine Dawn had some incredible quotes that I will be putting on memes so that you can share them and, and let everybody else know about this podcast as well. And if you love this podcast episode like I did, I hope you'll go up to iTunes and rate and review it so others can learn about these outstanding solutions that Dr. Hebner has provided. I truly appreciate it. And I think we have wrapped it up. That's all the time we have for today. I hope you will continue to tune into How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even when it seems like nothing's going right, you're stuck in the middle of that worry, it feels feels like a cycle, it feels like you're never going to get out, we all have those days and we have faith in you. You've got this. You're here, you're getting the information you need, and on the days when you fall short, and we know you all have them, never forget that there's always tomorrow. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. I get it. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet, sweet sanity, please know you are 10 times the parent you think you are. You really are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.